Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before that, he worked in law enforcement and intelligence agencies, including Scotland Yard and the National Criminal Intelligence Service. John McGrath is a global solution architect with IBM and works with IBMers to find ways in which the company can turn its expertise and technology towards solving real-world problems. And when it comes to real-world problems, human trafficking is a major one. When you consider the impact of the issue, not just on those who are the direct victims, but also their families and communities, as well as the various companies that are profiting off the proliferation of human trafficking, it can quickly become overwhelming. That's why I was excited to speak with Neil and John, as they helped me get a better understanding of the issue and how technology is playing an intrinsic and at times non-intuitive part in combating human trafficking. First, let me thank both of you for being on the show. And before we get into the topic at hand, I thought it would be nice to get to know the two of you and to learn more about your background and what brought you to your current positions. So, John, could we start with you? Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is you do and, and how you got there? Sure. So uh, my name is John McGrath. I'm a senior solution architect for IBM in Ireland, based out of the Dublin lab in, uh, in Ireland. My background, Jonathan, is 14 years working in lab services for IBM, which involves de dealing with clients um, on a daily basis. 
Um, but about two and a half, three years ago, I got involved in the Traffic Analysis Hub initiative. And from that, uh, I, I managed to form a team called the Tech for Good team in Dublin. And, uh, and that's what I do on a daily basis now. I, I work with the Tech for Good team. Excellent. And Neil, can you tell us a bit about yourself and, and your position? Surely, Jonathan. Um, so uh, my name is Neil Giles. I'm um, currently CEO of a, a newly formed not-for-profit called Traffic Analysis Hub. Uh, my journey here um, is a torturous one. Um, I spent 36 years in law enforcement in the United Kingdom, um, uh, concluding that time as Deputy Director of our national agency. I'm an organized crime intelligence expert. Um, and while I was serving with our national agency, I, I came across a small not-for-profit called Stop the Traffic, who were specializing in preventing human trafficking. They began their work with the cocoa industry in West Africa that was using thousands of child slaves to pick cocoa for our chocolate. Um, and I was disappointed to learn that they knew more about trafficking than the intelligence systems in my national agency. Um, so began forming a relationship with them to, uh, to grow uh, that understanding in the agency and, and to begin to build unusual partnerships with NGOs and other subject matter experts. And, uh, when I left law enforcement nine years ago, I began working with Stop the Traffic more routinely, realizing that we needed a richer picture of trafficking if we were going to be effective as societies to begin to make it history. Um, we haven't done that yet, but we've begun to create that richer picture through the work that we've been doing. And Neil, I think you've hit on something that I really wanted to focus on in the early part of our conversation. The fact that uh, even in your role in intelligence, that there was a lack of real knowledge about human trafficking. I think that certainly can apply to the the general population. I know that for myself, it's something that I am aware happens. And typically, I don't really even think about it until I'm going through an airport and I see a poster that's bringing it to your attention directly. And otherwise, I'm kind of in the dark. Can you give us sort of a, a an outline of how big a problem this is. Give us the scope and the impact of human trafficking. Human trafficking is pretty well defined as a global phenomenon now. Um, the, the, the academic estimates, which are reasonable, suggest that something like 40 million people globally are in circumstances that we would be comfortable to describe as trafficking and exploitation. Um, that's an enormous number of people. Uh, even in, uh, in the UK, uh, the best estimates suggest that something like 135,000 people are in circumstances of exploitation, uh, having been trafficked. Uh, so you could fill the biggest sports stadium that we've got twice over with those people. And I think the best way of describing it to people is that it's, it's an errant economy in its own right. Uh, traffic, trafficking and exploitation uh, splits into two chunks. Um, 35% um, estimate of, of those people in exploitation tend to be in some aspect of commercial sexual exploitation. 65% are in labor markets, 
particularly those labour markets that rely on seasonal workers, contract workers. So agriculture, food processing and manufacturing, uh, construction, big fishing, uh, sea fleets, um, logistics are, are very popular destinations for traffic labour where very uh, criminal recruitment gangs um, infiltrate them into the workforce. Most people's journeys into exploitation begin as journeys of hope. They're tricked into taking a journey on the basis that there's a great new future for them and their family. And then when they get to that destination, it turns to dust and becomes a, a creeping debt bondage situation. And it's worth something like three quarters of a trillion dollars a year, we estimate. Um, there's a new official estimate out this year, um, or oh, sorry, early next year, um, that, that will define it slightly differently, um, probably. Um, but, but that's our best guess. I hope that that, that gives you a sense of, of, of how the thing operates. It, it needs to recruit something like 20% of its workforce newly every year. So somewhere somewhere up to 8 million people a year is a recruitment requirement. It's about money, and, and most of that money goes through financial institutions. And it's about creating a market, creating demand and maintaining demand. And, and it can't be solved just by the justice process, and it can't be solved just by humanitarian activity, rescuing and rehabilitating. Neil, that also brings me to a follow-up question. Uh, traditionally, what measures do various agencies and governments take in an effort to prevent human trafficking? You had mentioned that this is beyond the scope of any one organization, but what are the sort of efforts that have been uh, put forward uh, so far? We need traffickers to have a real sense of risk. Uh, if if they do this, that the, they are likely to be discovered and held to account. Uh, and therefore, there, there is a significant role for investigators, um, for the justice process. Um, but, but more broadly, we need to think about the problem in, in an economic sense. Um, and, and that's the aspect that I think has taken too long to develop. You know, in, in lots of parts of the world, the justice process doesn't work well. And of course, trafficking is a global issue. Uh, in, in the more developed societies, the justice process does hold people to account, perhaps not in the numbers that we might like, but it, but it's a sanction that people fear. Um, and, and therefore it, it's a very worthy element of, um, of the program. Um, and, and encouraging other parts of the world where that doesn't work so well to get better at it is really important. Um, but, we have over relied on, in my view, on, on that outcome, um, as the resolution to the problem. And of course, while there's money to make in good quantity and not enough, um, fear of sanction, uh, then traffickers will still flourish and demand will still maintain or grow. Right. So without us having any, you know, without addressing those root causes, what we're looking at uh, really is dealing with the consequences, and that's just going to be a consistent issue without addressing those root causes. Obviously, this is an enormous issue that uh, is going to require a lot of work across the globe in order to really uh, tamp down on it. 
John, I, I'm curious about how you come into the picture. We're about to start talking about using technology in a way to detect and then take measures to prevent things like human trafficking. How did you get involved with this particular challenge? Okay, so I, I think I mentioned earlier, Jonathan, that I was working as a services person. So I was based in the Middle East working with some government agencies on behalf of IBM Security. Uh, and in my role, I had a give back opportunity. And I was invited by IBM Corporate Social Responsibility to come to London to help facilitate a workshop uh, for Stop the Traffic. Uh, and that was the first uh, exposure I had really to the issue of human trafficking beyond what the casual layperson knew about it. But the thing that was interesting for me when I walked into the room to host the workshop was the attendees weren't just the, the people I expected. So I expected to see non-government organizations and not-for-profits there. And I expected to see law enforcement agencies and some government agencies. Uh, what I didn't expect to see were financial institutions. And there were a lot of financial institutions present and it was really during that workshop that I kind of got the realization that this was a cross-sectoral issue and the solution had to come from multi-sectoral collaboration. So that was really the starting point for me. And from that, I worked with Neil and the Stop the Traffic team to learn more about the issue. Um, and I spent many evenings and weekends in, in the hotel in, in the Middle East building prototypes and, and sampling what could be done using various technologies. Uh, all are all based on this principle of how do we get to data sharing collaboration around this issue. Can you talk a little bit more about those technologies? What form did they take? What was it that you were thinking? Like what metrics are you looking at and how are you analyzing them? Sure. The, um, uh, the starting point in the first workshop was there was kind of a division in the room, depending on, on the agencies and the, the sort of core mission of each organization. But there was a basic two requirements, uh, primary requirements that came out. The first was for this ability to do a global level analysis of the problem to see where the areas of intensity were uh, for particular types of trafficking, uh, to be able to, to see how this is influenced by not just geography, but by time. Uh, and then also there, there was a requirement to be able to see the routes that were being used by the traffickers to move their, their victims from point A to point B. So, so that was kind of the, the one half of the room we're looking for this macro level view that would give them the global picture and, and if you like, validate some of the high level figures, the estimated figures that Neil was talking about earlier. And then the other half of the room were more interested in, okay, now that I know where the issue is, how do I pull that into a secure environment where I can start to investigate it and start to, to understand the network in more detail? Who are the people involved? How are they moving people? What tools are they using? You know, what addresses, account numbers, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so we had this kind of uh, a double requirement. So we started to look at what kind of technologies we've used in, used in the past, which could help to satisfy both of these requirements. While you were developing this in the early days, what were some of the lessons you learned? What were things that, you know, were there pathways that you were taking uh, early on that turned out to be less fruitful than you hoped or things that you discovered that surprised you while you were developing this early approach? Sure. The uh, Well, one of the first things that hit us uh, wasn't necessarily a surprise, Jonathan, but uh, the, the extent of how it impacted us uh, kind of surprises was the whole data privacy issue and uh, and the challenges around sharing data across jurisdictions. 
So, so this became a, a reasonably high priority in our requirements, if you like, when we were trying to design the system. Uh, a lot of the, the basis of what we were trying to do was capture data from all over the world and make it available to partners from all over the world. Uh, but we had to be very careful that we took out any sensitive information, any unique identifiers, and then we had to run the proposals through you know, various legal uh, people to give us advice on, on whether or not we were following the right path. So not not so much a technical issue, although there are technologies that can help with this. Uh, it was more about you know, a requirements issue. Um, and then we started to look at things like um, the largest amount of the data is contained in the narratives that the victims are the narratives about the stories of the victims. Uh, and to do that, we, we turn to natural language understanding and machine learning. Um, and then we, we hit the challenges that everybody hits in this domain of making sure it's accurate, making sure it's unbiased, but also dealing with multilingual uh, issues. So we, a lot of the data is not necessarily in the primary languages. So uh, that, that was another one of the big challenges that we had to think about. Yes, this is an enormous challenge just in, in machine learning in general is the natural language processing and being able to parse what someone means when they say something a particular way. And I imagine when you are trying to uh, handle or analyze an enormous amount of data, that problem becomes magnified enormously. What, was it this particular set of efforts that then led into the traffic analysis hub, or did that come about in a different way? Yeah, the um, the traffic analysis hub came out of a, a kind of vision that Stop the Traffic had had for a while. It, it became part of that workshop on the, on, uh, back in London. Uh, it was that macro level view that everybody could share and everybody got value from. And that became the primary target for the initial prototypes. So when we were looking at that, we were trying to get a geospatial view, you know, a map-based analysis of data. We were trying to figure out how to capture data. And then we realized that every different source that we accessed kind of classified their data uniquely. And now it's very difficult to do comparative analysis across these things. So then we, we hit the challenge of how do we, we make it consistent so that it makes sense to everybody. Um, and then we, we hit challenges like things like locations. So there's lots of, in the narratives of, of stories, there's lots of references to locations. We needed to understand not just where a location was referenced, but the context in which it's been referenced. And then when we knew that, we had to go find the coordinates for it to put it on the map. But we had to be careful that we were getting the correct coordinates for the correct location because there's lots of, for instance, there, I think there's 17 different Londons around the world. So we had to be clear about which London was actually being referenced in text. So, so that was really kind of the, the progression of the, the prototypes. Yeah, I think that for, for a lot of people, myself included, we can sometimes fall into a trap where we're thinking about these very sophisticated systems, pulling data as if it's magically all in a centralized, uh, uniform database. I think the magical thing for a lot of folks who look into this is that we see how these systems are able to spot patterns uh, and trends in data sets that are so enormous that to us, it, there's no signal, it's just noise. So seeing something that can pick out a signal does seem a little magical. Well, as the TA hub is uh, evolving and taking shape, have we already seen some impact in the real world? Is it being used right now to help identify and prevent uh, trafficking today? It, it, it's being used by uh, over 
we have over 100 organizations who are members of the hub at this point. Um, and all of them have their own secret missions or their own uh, uh, their, their own core missions of what they're, they're trying to achieve with it. But we have anecdotal stories from various parties of, of where they've got value from the data that's in the hub. And sometimes the value, interestingly, is not just in the data. It's in the collaboration with their peer organizations and the other partners in the hub, which was part of what, what we tried to set out to do in the first place, was achieve this kind of safe, collaborative environment where people could share uh, uh, their expertise as well as their knowledge for the purpose of disrupting human trafficking. But we have got a lot of um, feedback from various partners where they've been able to validate data that they had seen in their internal systems when they were starting to, to investigate issues. They're able to validate some of that in the hub by looking at the data that we've been collecting. Uh, and then conversely, we've also had the same feedback from uh, organizations who are investigators who say we're able to identify new areas of investigation in the hub that we weren't aware of because we'd never looked there before. But once we started to look, we started to see um, patterns in our own data sets in those locations. There are facilities for different audiences in the hub. So you've got people like researchers in academia who come in uh, and, and the, the facility we have in, which, uh, in the hub, which allows them to navigate by concept through large uh, news data sets. Um, that's a facility that they give us feedback on uh, a lot that tells us it helps them to find information and to support their, their research. We had one person who um, every month we have an analyst call in the community where the community and the hub come together. They look at the functionalities that we're building and the data sets that we're gathering and they give us direction on what they need. And we feature a participant on that every month. So we ha had a person who actually, actually presented their thesis uh, and part of their thesis was based on data that they pulled in from the hub uh, to, to validate their own, uh, their own insights into human trafficking. That's phenomenal. So not just building a system that's doing this very technical work, but also just building these relationships, forming relationships across various sectors and various countries that can all be you know, directed toward helping stop this problem. What other ways do you see the Traffic Analysis Hub impacting various industries? Uh, so we've, uh, we, well, first off, we've built a platform uh, underpinning the Traffic Analysis Hub, which allows, uh, allows us to reuse the capabilities across different um, issues. So we've also used it for things like food re redistribution uh, to avoid food waste. And we've also used it in the area of uh, migration and population displacement and trying to pre uh, uh, create prediction models and stuff. So the, the thing that kind of excites me about this is we're starting to bring in new uh, sectors, but also uh, not just you know industry sectors, but sectors within the NGO world who are focused on different parts of, uh, of, of uh, social issues. And we're able to bring them together into one platform and one community and start to share information. So we've been approached by organizations who are, who are focused on animal trafficking to see, see if they can get access to the hub and start to share their data in there as well. And we're also starting to see the, the reusability of some of the, the things that we've built. For instance, we, we built a, a causality model in partnership with IBM Research and where we were looking at the, uh, the, the attributes that are most prevalent in causing uh, things like population displacements. Uh, and these models are things that we can then reapply from one 
uh, use case to another. So we're trying trying now to move that model into human trafficking to see if we can determine, for instance, uh, the, the, the likely outcome analysis uh, for interventions in certain locations. To me, that's also inspiring because in that process, you could be working on issues that uh, are tangentially tied into trafficking, you know, some of those underlying root causes we were talking about. And being able to solve some of these social issues can also help remove some of those causes or at least diminish them somewhat and thus have this sort of positive feedback loop of being able to solve these these traditionally incredibly difficult problems, largely because it is hard for us to even get a grasp on all the data that plays into this. I sometimes liken this to, you know, making making the challenge of making a uh, a long term forecast for the weather. There's just so many variables that are out there and they interact with each other in ways that we don't fully understand. It can be difficult to make anything, you know, uh, like a forecast that's 10 days out. On a similar front, we see this real world, you know, unfolding of, of trying to tackle these enormous social problems that also have all these different variables, many of which are at their heart human issues and humans are largely unpredictable creatures. So it's fascinating to see these systems that are starting to glean insights into the way these, these large systems of people and, and the way we work, how, how they actually perform out in the real world, being able to draw conclusions about that, predictions, and perhaps solutions. Um, what would you say are, are some of the lessons you have learned in this, both just as uh, seeing how the the TA hub and the related technologies have uh, given insight into the human trafficking problem and also lessons you've learned as as leaders in that space. Sure. Well, certainly from, from my side, one of the big lessons I've learned is how super motivated the IBM staff are to get involved in initiatives like this. You know, it's been, uh, I was talking to somebody earlier today and I was saying I could spend 50% of my time talking to volunteers within IBM who, who want to help and they're all bringing individual skills and capabilities uh, and experience here uh, and offering to, to help us out with various pieces of the puzzle. Uh, so there's a huge po- uh, potential here to apply technology to some of these challenges. The other thing that's very interesting at the moment is a lot of these core major social issues, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's climate change, whether it's you know population displacement, whether it's trafficking, they're all intertwined. Uh, and one is influencing the other, and the attributes that influ- influence the prevalence of this, uh, of these uh, events in different parts of the world, uh, they're very often common attributes. Uh, so we're trying to figure out: can we build models that, that will help us to identify? You know, what are the attributes that are that are interesting, uh, and trying to lead a, a team through this. You know, um, keep them focused on stuff that we have to deliver, but also giving them the the freedom and the, the, the ability to go and, and explore these new uh, uh, opportunities and new ideas, that's uh, as a core learning for me. Yeah, from my side, Jonathan, um, I, I think the first thing I discovered was that whilst we're absolutely data rich, we are terribly knowledge poor. Um, and, and the work that we've been doing together with IBM um, and the Tech for Good team I think has begun to change that picture, um, and and then so the ne- the next key element in that chain of activity needs to be 
to ensure the widest possible appropriate audience can access that knowledge because no one's got enough resources to do everything at once. It's, a, it's, it's the classic problem. You can only focus on so many things. So you need to use that knowledge like I would have used intelligence in an investigative way in law enforcement um, to focus the resources that you've got at the hotspots and points where you can make a difference. Um, and and that, that's how we get this thing on the run. Uh, and we need to we need to start um, undermining uh, the economic pillars that currently comfortably support trafficking in persons and exploitation. And and I think that we we've made a decent start. And I, I like Neil how you brought that around to this challenge of being data rich and knowledge poor. Uh, to me, that was we're seeing that 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 pivot now, where the early days of big data seem to be an emphasis on look at how much data we have access to. And now we are kind of moving into a new era. We're well into a new era, really, where it's how do we actually leverage this enormous fire hose of information? Uh, it's coming in from all directions, generated by more devices than ever before in the history of humanity. And we're actually starting to see systems like the the TA Hub systems that are able to take that information and do something that's truly useful and impactful. Uh, how do you see the approach to trafficking changing over the, the course of the future? What do you see as the evolution of uh, addressing human trafficking? I, I think the big gains are in commerce and industry. Um, I think that the ability for um, for corporates to begin to um, understand where they need to focus their activities and what questions they need to ask of their suppliers, um, particularly in, in difficult parts of the world. Um, and similarly, for um, financial institutions, again, it helps them uh, because, because every errant business has a banker uh, and, and a banking facility. Um, and the clues are there if the uh, if the customer management process knew what those clues were and knew what questions to ask. Um, and and our view is that the the more the more we grow access to the data that we've we have to businesses and financial institutions, um, the greater influence they'll have on opportunity or, or and reduce opportunity uh, for trafficking to flourish. Before I sign off in this episode, I just want to reiterate some of the things we covered in this, and that is these are non-trivial problems, both the real-world problem of human trafficking, which is clearly non-trivial, it is critical, and the actual computer problems that the teams are trying to solve in order to really take full advantage of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and apply that to this incredibly difficult issue. Everything from natural language processing to pulling in information from various sources and contextualizing it in a way that's useful, these are hard problems to solve. But as we've seen, it is worth it in the effort to stop human trafficking. I want to thank John and Neil again for joining the episode. It was an honor to talk with them about such an important issue. 
I hope that you learned something in this episode, and I look forward to sharing more Smart Talks episodes with you in the near future. Take care. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 